0: You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing Podcast.
1: Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing Podcast. I'm David Manti, and with me this week are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites and discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Also, make sure to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. Get the podcast delivered to you first. We're also live every Friday at about 1.30 or (laughs) (laughs) 11.16. Subscribe on YouTube at IEN Magazine to get a notification. We got a couple of people already fired up in the comments section, and uh, I'm I'm liking it, Anna.
0: Yeah, 11:16. Uh, we just want to get crazy with you guys today. So. Yeah,
1: on the dot. Jeff Seth is making hot sauces today, and needs his IEN in the background.
2: I'm glad we can oblige him. Mm-hmm. Send us some
1: hot
0: sauce, hey, please,
1: hot Seth. Sauce. We need to
2: brand uh, that. Yeah, uh, IEN hot sauce.
1: I'm in. We went from like T-shirts to hats, and instead of beer koozies. I say we go hot sauce. I'm with you. We got a guy. Hey. All right. Before we get started, we have a word from our sponsor.
0: According to Rockwell Automation, downtime costs industrial manufacturers some $50 billion each year, and it's largely avoidable. Engineering transformation relies on the prioritization of digital skills and manufacturers can gain a clear competitive advantage when they explore invest in, and deploy new and emerging digital technologies. I'm Anna Wells, executive editor of Manufacturing.net, and today we are joined by two experts from Rockwell Automation, Matt Masaryk and Anton Lana, who will share with us how companies can save valuable time and money by testing and improving their designs before they start production.
1: And we're back. And now another word from Rockwell Automation, Businesses need to consider how they can create a digital vision for their operations and a plan for how to monitor progress. This new video podcast will help you discover how companies can save valuable time and money by testing and improving their designs before they start production. I just wanted to leave them hanging with that dramatic pause. Um you can, there'll be a link to download this video podcast from Rockwell Automation, um, both in the live chat and uh, below the video. So check that out. Um, Anna, your thoughts on this Rockwell Automation video podcast?
0: I actually hosted this uh, discussion. So a lot of it focuses on digital twins, and it was actually very interesting.
1: Very good. Uh, that's like one of the new buzzwords, right? Digital, digital twins. Yeah. Everyone's got to get into it.
0: I have physical twins. They're four years old. Yeah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> they're not at all digital. I bet they're like,
1: more challenging than the <laughs> digital kind. Like at first, I forgot about the kids. And I'm like, oh my god, Anna's got a twin, and it's coming out now, like live. No, nope. are you a twin? No. Nope. Okay, good, good. All right, I'll good.
2: Wanna... Oh, wow, I mean,
1: <laughs> man. I mean, good in the sense because I didn't like know, you oh, know, like okay. so. No, I, I was right, just okay, like, yeah. sure.
0: I get, I get it. One just, is enough. Yep. Okay. <laughs>
1: First story this week. (laughs) Prototype electric airplane takes first flight. Aerospace startup Eviation has built a new prototype EV airplane that can carry nine passengers and up to two pilots. The plane took flight Tuesday morning. It took off from Moses Lake, Washington at 7.10 a.m. Tuesday and landed eight minutes later. According to the Seattle Times, if the FAA certifies the airplane to carry passengers, it could be the first all-electric commercial airplane. The plane is powered by 21,500 small Tesla-style battery cells. The company's goal is to show such electric planes are viable as commuter aircraft. Jeff,
2: what were your thoughts on aviation's grand achievement this week. So I got to admit, I I did a 180 on this one from where I started and where I ended up. When I first started looking at it, I was like, okay, great. We've done a lot of these stories on electric aircraft and that's wonderful. Here's another one. I started looking into it and you're looking at a plane that tops out at about 300 miles per hour. For a plane that size, that's about 100 to 150 miles per hour per hour. Um, slower oh. than than a comparable combustion engine type uh, option. Also, when you looked at the range of only about mm-hmm. 300 miles, the payload of about 2,500 pounds, I was kind of thinking, how is this going to work? Right. You know. But do a little bit more research, mm-hmm. and you see that also these typical planes would run anywhere around 10 to 15 million dollars. This one, according to a report on GeekWire, when they're looking at some of the other deals that. How are we saying this? Aviation? Yeah. Am I saying Eviation. that correctly? Yeah. Um, has actually got in place. These planes are rumored to sell for about $4 million apiece. Okay. So when you're looking at the cost savings there, coupled with the fuel savings, there could be a lot of benefits here. And they've also actually landed a couple of pretty interesting deals. One of them is with Global X, which does a lot of things from the U.S. into Latin America, as well as like the Caribbean. And mm-hmm. it's not just passengers. It's also cargo. So obviously – There is an application here. Despite my concerns over not being fast enough, the range, the capacity, people have found an application here. They've even got a deal going with um, DHL. They've ordered 12 of these planes. And another one, Massachusetts-based Cape Air has ordered 75 of these planes. So there is a lot of people that are in demand. They're drinking the Mm Kool-Aid. So despite where I started... I'm coming around. So, so did, like, the, like, did I this started thing. started negative and now I've turned positive, which is the exact opposite of everything I always that's do. That's true. So. And it sounded
0: like this thing maybe led to the thing as you went, as you were. Oh,
2: no. It's well done. Anna. Okay. okay. Well we can't done. have
1: thoughts that lead to the thoughts. That's just thoughts how thinking that- works. <laughs> <laughs> that's how thinking works. Um. There's a
2: shirt. That's how thinking works. <laughs>
1: Too many people, I think, forget sometimes. Um, No, Jeff, one thing that, uh, because I actually, I stayed on the skepticism a little bit, because the aviation CEO, Greg Davis, said that the prototype that took off Tuesday was not the design that the company is actually going to build later, and that it's, there are still many, uh, many, a lot more progress that needs to come with battery technology to make these planes commercially viable. So I'm kind of, uh, Anna, I don't know if you read that, and if you're (laughs) on the same side where it's like yeah, all these deals are in place and all this sounds good, but battery technology still has a long way to go.
0: Well, I agree. But at the same time, I think we have to look at this in the scope of like what the aviation industry needs to do to catch up. Um, You know, if you look at commercial air travel, it accounts for about three to four percent of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, which may not sound like a lot because if you look at how much comes from automotive. Right. But, um, you know, there's just there's a lot there right like if you look at you know how much scope there is to like you know farming and cars and air conditioners and stuff i mean four percent is a a chunk right right, um so and and they really have a big um role here i think in trying to mitigate this and uh according to the new york times while planes are becoming more efficient with each new model growing demand for flights is actually outpacing these advancements in terms of like what they're putting out into the the atmosphere so the challenge I think is that there's been a lot of developments that address this and that includes like hydrogen fuel cells um, sustainable aviation fuel or SAF uh, electric but everything so far has been so far from viability that experts believe it's still going to take decades to actually make a dent in this yeah. um, so to me any advancements here are a big deal um, and if you consider that, like something like sustainable aviation fuel still comprises like 0.1% of all aviation (laughs) fuel that's being used. Um, And the president has set a goal to ramp that up quite a bit in the next 10 years or so. But it's a very slow moving game is my point. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think like, you know, as people become increasingly more comfortable with electric drive chains and cars, um, it is an important step. And it's a very timely one to see what we can do here in terms of Air, air, you know, airplanes. But
1: um, William Brent, who's watching us live, uh, says, "Yeah, the plane company landed deals. So well done. Well <laughs> jokes. Well done." Um, one thing that I was intrigued by is that they call the prototype Alice. Um, it's one thing that I always find fascinating <laughs> as to what they call, you know, uh, generation right. one. Now, whether Alice uh, can deliver the economic returns necessary to become a commonplace mode of air travel. Remains highly uncertain. Um, Either way, some really interesting things happening with aviation, despite the name. Um, I don't know. That's just kind of simple. That's the low-hanging fruit
2: right there. I don't know. Straightforward, though. We've seen worse. Like in some of the marketing programs we've demoed in the past, Mm -hmm. folks trying to be super creative, and it just, no, don't do that. Don't do that. One thing, if I can just throw in one more comment here, the one thing that makes me also more optimistic about this is the relationship that aviation has with this company Magnix which is developing all these electron propulsion units and it's what's what's encouraging here is it's not developed for this specific plane they've got a variety probably just a handful of different basically electric motors if you want to you know it's simplifying it Mm -hmm. but what they have different applications so and what the work that they're doing and where they've come in the last 15 years is incredibly encouraging as well not just for this particular company and this particular prototype but beyond that, um, it was also interesting. You know, Anna, you brought up the SAFs. I was mm-hmm. actually at a Honeywell function not too long ago. They actually have some um, some pilot plants down not too far from us that we got got a chance to go look at. And one of them does deal with those sustainable aviation fuels. Mm-hmm. The biggest issue there, because we talked about like the cooking oils that mm-hmm. we've actually been developed and used for that, is mm-hmm. collecting them. Mm-hmm. It's the logistics part of it. There is plenty of it out there, and it works. They just can't get enough of the actual feedstock collected to to produce fuel Mm -hmm. so once they can figure out a way to get all the fast food chains (laughs) into one bud sort of depot of dumping all their cooking oil we could definitely see some interesting things happening there but right now it's just it's just actually collecting it that's Mm -hmm. the the biggest issue so that'll be interesting to see too
1: don't live near that vat. um (laughs) you know one of the most exciting things about an electric airplane is the noise it's gonna be silent Think of how loud planes are.
0: It is going to be silent.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, quieter. Uh,
2: yeah,
0: a lot quieter. I mean, like, you'll still have like the machinery and stuff moving. Like,
1: I don't know. Just think about the com- think uh, an electric car next to a regular combustion engine car. I mean, but they like, are so quiet. You're
2: still going to have turbines.
1: Yeah.
0: Like there's and and all the n- the speed noise. Like, don't you think? I don't know. I just
1: think it'll be remarkably quieter, and that'll be okay with me. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't rain on this
0: parade. Sorry. I'm glad that you like that part. It's not going to (laughs) be
1: silent. All right. Our next most popular story, Volkswagen's driverless car prototype will put you to sleep. Volkswagen recently unveiled the Gen Travel, an autonomous vehicle the company believes could help introduce mobility as a service and replace short distance flights. The Gen Travel has a modular interior that can be customized to overnight settings that include two fully reclining seats. The vehicle even includes a passenger restraint system to keep you safe when you're lying down in a lighting system that, quote, influences melatonin production to help passengers fall asleep and wake up naturally. The lighting will even help cut down on motion sickness. VW thinks that gen travel could revolutionize business trips with a conference set up with four seats and a large table in the middle, or family trips with front seats that can be configured to entertain the children using augmented reality. Jeff, this was the story that I thought about because when we were talking about the EV planes range being so limited, that maybe as this autonomous vehicle technology comes on board, maybe some of those, you know... uh Puddle jumper flights go by the wayside.
2: Well, especially when you're looking at a family. Mm -hmm. I mean, potentially it's – I get caught in the middle on this one too a little bit because on one hand, I can see the application. I can see the promise for something like this. But from Volkswagen's perspective, right now they've got their IQ.Drive that they have in place for some of their vehicles, which is probably at a level three for mm-hmm. autonomous operations, in terms of it's got the sensors in the front, so you don't hit anything. Sensors in the back, so you don't hit anything. Different speed control options, things like that. But to jump to this, you're almost skipping a step. This is <laughs> yeah, like fully autonomous. This is going from like five. yeah, yeah. It's like going from three to five. So it's it's a big swing. Volkswagen has made a lot of headlines, first of all, for the over $30 billion that they had to pay out from their emissions scandal, and then trying to transition all this stuff that they're doing on the electric side. So then to come out with something like this. I mean, I understand it's a prototype. I understand they're looking further ahead, but I still think autonomous driving activity scares a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Like the general premise of this right now, and granted, it hasn't been tested. It's not being sold. Anything like that. It's just saying, hey, maybe someday boy, it just it it just reeks of uncomfortable for me. I just, like, I cannot, <laughs> yeah. there is not a part of me right now that I can imagine saying, plug in the destination, I'm going to take a nap. Yeah. Like, especially with my family.
0: You car. don't think you're yeah. there yet.
2: I, yeah. Very nice, Anna. Um, no, I agree
1: that while I like this type of technology, I don't know, I, I don't know, maybe it's the controlling part of me, but uh, I don't know that I could sit back as the family's headed to the Wisconsin Dells or something mm-hmm. and just, you know, all taking a movie while, uh, you know, the car steers itself. What were your thoughts on VW's gen travel prototype?
0: Yeah, i I agree with you guys. It seems a little early and I agree with your skepticism and that sort of mirrors the market right now. But yeah. I do think that VW gets it. Um, I think, honestly, if automakers want to make this a reality, they have to stress some of the potential benefits that people aren't really thinking about. Um, We know that there's been some pushback on this about the idea of, you know, companies taking away your ability to drive. There's a lot of people that don't want that at all, right? Um, And we haven't really seen like enough safe use of this on the roadways for people to trust it. But I think if you want to get them over the idea of like doing what we've always done, this case maybe vw is just trying to plant the seed in a consumer's minds of like look you know the transition to driverless isn't just taking away that ability it opens all these other doors like think about what else you can do you're on a family vacation and you're not stressing about the road you're playing uno at the table or you're taking (laughs) a nap and maybe the nap isn't the thing you know what i mean maybe it's like it's just these suggestions and we've seen it with design elements before the the tables the visuals of people like sitting backwards reading a book watching a movie but i think like designing around the idea of naps kind of drives home this point sorry for the drives but um about how like it's really just sort of this deliberate play towards boosting the image of this tech being about lifestyle Mm -hmm. maybe as opposed to like what you're comfortable with now it just sort of builds on this idea i guess
1: well and we've seen startups like canoe and there have been other rv startups mm-hmm. that have really pitched this idea of it being almost like a uh, an autonomous social space
0: totally and like if you think about how much marketing language there is now about like like taking your time back for yourself self-care like mm-hmm. spending time doing things that you like reading relaxing meditating whatever um this speaks to that Opportunity yeah. that you do not get driving a car right now, so maybe mm. that's what gets people over it. I don't know. Yeah.
1: No, I agree. I uh, there was uh, some skepticism from Quixote on the website who says, "When my time on Earth is done, I hope to die quietly in my sleep, like my grandfather, not screaming in terror like the passengers in this car." Whoa. <laughs> So, That's but they darker. will be asleep. Quixote is skeptical. I'm assuming that he wakes up. He wakes up as they're tumbling down the hill. I see. Um, just before the fire is when Quixote yeah. is going to wake up. Um, I do like the idea of falling asleep while driving. Um, <laughs> wow, I do. And uh, how um, Ben Munson, who did this story, said uh, falling asleep while driving is still not recommended. <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out. Um, but no, it's interesting to me to never have to set foot in an airport in an airport again. We talked with about that. it before, with yeah. like the Hyperloop stuff like that. And I like this as an idea of you know sort of how we talk about um, like urban air mobility. This is like a step towards just general urban mobility, where it would not. This would be almost more of a service that you would call, and then they would. I mean, uh, they even talk about them like traveling in convoys to save energy, stuff like that along the way.
2: So you don't envision this or Volkswagen doesn't envision this being a vehicle you would buy? I mean, maybe, but I think
1: the initial concept is kind of like how instead of trying to pitch you a flying car, they're trying to pitch a fleet of flying cars. You know, there would be a fleet of these that you would call almost like an Uber that would pick you up and take you to your destination. All right. Um, and Jeff, you kind of mentioned it, but they specifically say that this is a leap forward. This is an all-electric Innovation Experience Vehicle, or IEV. And it's the real prototype will drive autonomously at level five.
2: An innovation. An IEV. Experience vehicle. Mm-hmm. Get to know the You term. lost all faith in it. Yeah.
1: Wow. When you found the official word. Um, and this is specifically a research vehicle. The purpose of this is to test the concept and new functionalities that could wind up on future
2: cars. So how do you get how do you how do you get people like me on? How do you get them more comfortable with this? I know Anna was talking about that makes a ton of sense. Like you have to keep pushing these ideas forward mm-hmm. so that it does get into more of a, a mainstream mentality, if you will. But boy, it just seems like such a huge paradigm to overcome to get in and just totally give it up. I mean, regardless of the testing and everybody says it's safe and all that, Mm -hmm. I just think that is a tough mindset to overcome.
1: Maybe shuttles, like uh, maybe theme park shuttles, where I think of when you're staying at a Disney resort and maybe you could order something like this and it could take you to like Magic Kingdom or somewhere else to like get you familiar with the technology. You're not on a road, you're kind of just like in a private land. Mm -hmm. Maybe that could help sort of be an initial step. Yeah, some I, of the
2: taxis I, that are out there, I think we've seen them on the West Coast. but Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: Or like uh, right downtown where you're not going, I mean, you're not going any faster than 15 miles an hour. Yeah. I don't okay. know.
0: Which is what they're testing now in, you know, on the West Coast with some of those GM vehicles. It's yeah. just like very, like very stable weather conditions, very low speeds. Yes. And that gets people used to it, I guess. Yeah, I it works. It's a big step to get on the highway, but. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: it works perfectly. At near walking speed.
0: Yes. <laughs> Ever been in a Hot Wheels? It's about that speed.
1: <laughs> All right. Our, or our next... Power
0: Wheels is what I meant.
1: <laughs> no, I think of Power have, Wheels.
0: You have never been in a Hot the, Wheels. Uh,
1: producer Eric's uh, juiced up Power Wheels is going way faster than 15. She's dangerous. She's dangerous. <laughs> All right. Our next most popular story, unsolicited letter to Warren Buffett, Nets $500 million industrial park. West Virginia has reached a new deal with BHE Renewables, a Berkshire Hathaway energy company. Berkshire will acquire more than 2,000 acres of land in Ravenswood to build a, quote, first-of-its-kind industrial site powered by a renewable energy microgrid. The first tenant will be Precision Cast Parts, another Berkshire business that wants to build a state-of-the-art titanium melt facility. The site is the former home to a century aluminum plant. In Berkshire, is investing more than five hundred million dollars to develop the new manufacturing campus. The state's new half billion dollar windfall came as a result of an unsolicited letter. On a whim, state senator Glenn Jeffries wrote nine letters to billionaire investors around the world, including Warren Buffett, the head of Berkshire Hathaway. Buffett read the letter and told Berkshire exec Bill Furman to, quote, get on this. Well, he got on it, and the Renewable Energy Industrial Park could become a major aerospace hub in North America. No word yet on the other eight billionaires, Anna, but it does go to show that it never hurts to take a shot.
0: Well, very true. Um, you know, Warren, Buffen, Warren Buffett likes to invest in things that produce tangible results. He's sort of famous for that. He recently said, and this was like, the most hilarious thing I read the other day. He recently said he'd write you a 25 billion dollar check for 1% of the US of US farmland oh. if you could give it to him, and then he'd write you another 25 billion dollar check if you had 1% of the US apartment buildings. But if you offered him bitcoin, he would not give you $25. Mm.
1: I see eye to eye on that.
0: Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm with him. But he wants something that provides a tangible return, and that's always kind of how he's looked at his investment strategy. I think energy has always been a big area mm-hmm. for Berkshire Hathaway for that reason because he, you know, they consider it a basic essential need. Those are actually BHE's words. Um, so he's been putting a ton of money into it, including $25 billion in petroleum in just the first quarter of this year. hmm But BHE's interests also lie in coal, natural gas, wind, hydro, solar, nuclear, geothermal, biomass, everything. So the letter is a very cute story. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, maybe it was a whim, but it's not exactly outside the realm of Berkshire Hathaway's interests here. But they Uh, had to
1: find out about it somehow.
0: I guess. But to the point where BHE even said, quote, we are uniquely qualified to deliver this project. So Mm -hmm. I... I don't know. I think that it was maybe a well researched pitch. Um, mm-hmm. But overall, you know, it doesn't matter. It was a big win for West Virginia. If you consider that the former operators of this plant deeded the site back to the state a few years after they closed, and it's worth approximately $25 million um, to find use for this and yeah. to see BHE, who is expected to invest somewhere around $500 million, as you said, it really enables West Virginia to kind of diversify a bit um, and create some jobs. So that's pretty exciting.
1: Jeff, we don't see stories like this that often where um, sort of a defunct old or blighted spot, you know, finds new life, and not just new life, but a potential new aerospace hub in North America.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. And it's there's a lot of sort of cool dynamics to this in terms of when you look at where this is actually going to be built, this mm-hmm. whole this whole park. West Virginia, and this won't surprise anybody, but 88% of their power comes from coal mm-hmm. still, uh, right around 6% from renewables. The placement of this facility is also kind of interesting because when you look at renewables in West Virginia, first of all, they're 48th in terms of solar installations, so not real big there. Where they have gotten had some success with renewables is wind, mm-hmm. and it's all on the eastern part of the state. This is to the west. It's like right on the western border. The positive there is it's right by the Ohio River. So what you could see is a lot of hydroelectric power being generated Mm -hmm. from this facility, which is great because it's by far and away the most efficient renewable energy source. Better than solar, better than wind, something like a third better actually than burning fossil fuels. So it could be a huge win there. One of the other interesting things is when you look at precision cast parts, yes, they do a lot of aerospace and defense. They also do a part of that aerospace is gas turbines. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of interesting that they're going to draw from this renewable energy source potentially to make gas engines basically for right. big jet planes. The other thing that they do a lot of is actually serve the oil and gas industry mm-hmm. very prominently yeah, as well. Yeah. So a lot of sort of ironic elements to this in terms of using a microgrid that's going to be hopefully sourced from renewable energy resources mm-hmm. and the first person coming in definitely isn't a huge advocate of that in terms of applications for their products. So hopefully there'll be a bit of a a shift there as well. I think this is huge for West Virginia. Again, when you look at this area being so synonymous with mining and a lot of negative energy resources sort of that we're trying to get past Mm -hmm. once we can, because there is a lot. uh, The other thing, in addition to coal, there's a ton of natural gas in West Virginia as well. So giving the residents there, showing them that there are other options as well, Um, It could really have a real positive sort of trickle down effect throughout that state. And if it brings more industry to that area, obviously better for them as well.
1: Well, that was uh, part of what Senator Jeffries wrote in his carefully crafted letter to billionaire Warren Buffett.
0: I thought it was on a whim. It was carefully crafted. Okay.
1: well, I mean, it's still like he's not just going to send him a post-it note that's like, hey, check out West Virginia if you get a chance. No, it was, he talked about the state's coal legacy and about possibly building a renewable future. And I thought that was pretty cool.
2: Um, <laughs> David, I thought it was a great story. Well done. Well crafted.
1: No, no, no. I understand uh, my feelings. <laughs> um, I was surprised that um, the story didn't mention anything about the government incentives that West Virginia was going to likely be offering. Um because that, normally that's they talk to every one of the uh, parts of the state that have to do with economic development and incentives, but they never mentioned exactly what would be mm-hmm. traded as a result. Um, I did also like this quote from BHE Renewables President and CEO uh, Alicia Knapp. She said, this project demonstrates how investing in clean energy can revive economies that have served our country's energy needs for decades. Talking about the state's coal legacy. Um Initially, the project will create hundreds of new jobs, but it could be potentially thousands when this area is developed. Um, The other thing I wanted to call out was that when these types of press releases and events come out, there is just a hysterical number of quotes because every government official needs one. And it's just like, they must have fought over the order of importance. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm a senator, but I'm a senator with a name that starts with an A and you're one that starts with a B. (laughs) And uh, there's about... Three paragraphs of what actually is happening in the state, and then about ten paragraphs of everyone being like, "Well done! We really rallied the troops and all worked together, and thank goodness because West Virginia is going to thrive as a a result." So, but that might be the longest I've ever seen was ten like full (laughs) quotes, just and nothing in there, just like everyone patting each other on the back. Yeah, just like she did a great job, and she was saying that you did a great job. Well done, all around. All right. Our next most popular story, Ford running low on blue ovals. The supply chain, am I right? Ford Motor Company has made some 45,000 vehicles that are still missing parts. Some of the vehicles are missing something crucial, though, not mission critical. Ford's brand name. According to the Wall Street Journal, Ford has delayed deliveries on some vehicles because the company is out of little blue ovals. It's not just badges, but vehicle model nameplates as well, particularly for the F-Series pickups. Part of the problem could be that supplier Tribar Technologies in Howell, Michigan, was forced to reduce operations last month after it reported discharging industrial chemicals into local sewers. Ford has tried stopgaps like 3D printing the parts, but quality concerns led officials to pull the plug on that idea. Anna, now the company is just holding the vehicles until the logos come in, do you think of all the issues with the supply chain, they saw this one coming?
0: Ugh, why did they not see it, though? I, <laughs> it seems kind of absurd to me that Ford is not better diversified on this <laughs> mm-hmm, <yeah. laughs> to manage the badge issue. It's not like this part serves a purpose necessarily. Uh, it's metal in an oval shape. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Is it,
0: right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do we not know any other metal stampers? Like we can't. I don't know, it, and yet it's critical to how they go to market. So obviously, it's a critical component that they need. It's just really hard uh, for me to believe that they can't vertically integrate this. Maybe,
1: yeah. The uh, they didn't see they didn't get the alert on the probably incredibly advanced software that they have for managing supply chain. You know, no flag went off about the oval.
0: Well, right, and like if you look at some of the other things that automakers have started to absorb. Um, they're far more advanced. Uh, company Hyundai said they're going to make their own chips. Like mm-hmm. all these automakers are going to yeah. make their own batteries. You can't make the blue oval <laughs> in house.
1: They try. I, they try to three D print it, and they're like,
0: mm. I know, but they have sophisticated machinery. They have a it's talented, skilled <laughs> workforce to like. I, I feel like they could or should be doing this. You see something like this occur and it's no wonder that they're reshuffling their supply chain people right now. Cause it just seems r- pretty embarrassing, honestly, like a kind of a weird oversight. And I'm just surprised that this is not like a tier one item and there's no backup available. And and honestly yeah. it speaks to you how difficult it must be to be an auto company right now and how the supply chain is still very, very fractured in so many areas that consumers aren't even really thinking about. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's true that the shutdown of the, a supplier due to a regulatory issue is the cause of this, then it really speaks to how fragile that entire system is. And this is despite two years of these companies really working aggressively to try to prevent these types of exact scenarios. And this still what caught them by surprise. It's just it <laughs> sort of a I don't know sort of it's kind of mind blowing. So a lot it of is.
1: It, yeah, a lot of it was shocking to me as well, um, Jeff. I mean, but this is not a part that you would you would think to bring in house right i mean because it's not not being a mission critical part probably nothing associated with ip you figure that you find one or two maybe good suppliers that could bring it you know provide it for you <laughs> and maybe it's always an afterthought I don't
0: are know. there t- are there two even
1: I, no that's what i'm saying like that's the thing this,
2: you'd think there's got to be a ton of trademark copyright patent whatever on this logo it's such a iconic image mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. you would think you would be careful and guarded with who you actually provide this to and how you wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to do this somehow in house does kind of blow me away. I'm with Anna mm-hmm. on this one. There is a supply chain manager somewhere who is really glad to be working from home right now. Well, he's not, he's just at home now.
1: <laughs> that was part of the, that was part of the news is that he's working from, he's yeah. just working on other John is finding things. other opportunities. Yeah. Other
2: opportunities. Yeah. That is kind of, and it's, it is funny because like you say, it's not a mission critical from a, production mechanical perspective but man from a branding and from a user or customer loyalty perspective Mm -hmm. it is enormous there couldn't be any bigger so you do have to be worrying about yeah we can't just 3d print something and put it on there we can't just you know print off some cool stickers and see if that'll work it does need to be something and there are metal and they're significant especially when you look at something like the Mm f-150 you really have to put a durable you know iconic logo on there that really matches the look of the whole vehicle Mm -hmm. so it can't just be something that you sort of try to you know throw in there with whatever you got available to uh, to make it work it's it's interesting the other thing is doing a little research on this do you know where the actual the script for the ford logo came from Mm -mm.
1: some skilled calligraphist
2: it's actually and there's a little bit of debate on this but the prevailing thought is that's actually henry ford's writing oh so mm-hmm. they, they they changed their logo over the years. So there's some debate if they kept Henry. He initially, it was his hand script that had the Ford italics like that. They did change it a little bit. So there is some debate over a design engineer potentially updating that with his own take, like in the 30s. Yeah. But there is a thought that that's actually his. So, again, you would think they would preserve and protect that a little bit more than just counting on one supplier. Really interesting.
1: And not just the logo, but also their best-selling item. The mm-hmm. F series trucks. Um William Brents, who's still with us live, says, Ooh, I should buy a Ford logo plant and a three and a half inch floppy supply company. <laughs> yeah. There well, you go. Done. yeah. Yep. well done. Well done. Needs to be done. Um when I read the story, it made me understand that 3D printing isn't really ready for everything yet. We talk about 3D printing being um, being there for when these very specific types of things happen. You know, when you need a component that isn't necessarily ready off the shelf, you should be able to 3D print it. But that's everything that's inside. You know, okay. it, they're not pretty enough yet to put on the outside. Yeah. And I'm sure they tried tirelessly. I mean, there are some color 3D printers... Um, Particularly with Stratasys, that you know, do medical modeling, that I think could pull off a logo like that. But I don't know what they need in terms of um, what it needs in terms of standing up to the elements and like long term wear and tear. But I think, they could make it
2: look like. It. I think it's also integrating it with everything else: the grill, mm-hmm. yeah. the dashboard, the steering wheel, wherever it's going. Um, yeah. It needs to fit in with that whole design. And then you're looking at a lot of IP, I would think, in yeah. terms of making all that come together.
1: Um, Ford recently started construction at its largest manufacturing facility. The campus, which should be open in 2025, will be called, if you guys remember, Blue Oval City. So, do either of you think they're going to start making blue ovals? in Blue Oval City to make sure this doesn't happen again.
0: I can see why they don't want to make them, but I would think they should be capable of making them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I Like, uh, there's some uh, dusty equipment in the back. Like, nah, yeah, just, just get the logo printer going. Exactly.
0: Hang on to that one machine and <laughs>
1: yeah. the they one look...
0: dude know- who knows how to operate it. <laughs> they,
1: like, looked at the one that they, the last one that they used in-house and it was, like, one of those button makers <sighs> where you're still, like, pulling the lever down and just, like, yeah. all right, one every 30 seconds we should be, we should have 45,000 in no time. <sighs> All right, our most popular story this week. The first two-story 3D-printed home in the United States. Until recently, 3D-printed homes have been limited to a single story. But half of all single-family homes in the U.S. are two stories or more. So, in truly American form, we need to go higher and we need to go bigger. A team of architects and 3D-printing construction professionals are building the largest 3D-printed home on US soil. Designed by Hanna Architects and 3D printed by Perry, the 4,000 square foot building is being printed on a COBOD BOD 2 3D construction printer in Houston, Texas. Everything is bigger in Texas. Once completed, it will be only the second two-story 3D printed building in North America and the largest residential 3D printed building in the United States. It's actually kind of unfortunate. About two weeks ago, a company called Nidus 3D unveiled the first Two story 3D printed building in Canada, and I bet everybody at Hannah and Perry was just like, shucks, really thought we had that one. The home uses a hybrid construction method that combines concrete 3D printing with wood framing and aims to boost interest in 3D printed homes in the United States, where framing is still one of the most common construction techniques. The house is a series of printed cores cores that contain functional spaces and stairs. The concrete cores are connected by wood framing. The project's design is scalable and the construction process could soon be used for multifamily ho- housing units, as well as mixed use buildings. Jeff, would you live in a 3D printed
2: home? Um, I wouldn't say I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know right now, to be honest. I think there are, I would still have some questions um, yeah. and looking at it, I have to see how it comes together. But I think what was encouraging here is that even mm-hmm. though we've done a lot of these 3D printing stories and even specific to home building, mm-hmm. this one did get this much attention because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of disruptive technologies here to, to talk about. <clears throat> for me, it starts with the materials. Mm-hmm. We look at the fact that we know concrete production is horrible for the environment. It's very disruptive on a number of different fronts. When you're looking at building homes using a concrete material but needing less of it, mm-hmm. there's less waste that's just a positive thing right there for this. It's also supposed to be much more energy efficient and over the home's um, uh, lifespan. So a lot of positive things there. What's also going to be interesting is how do people embrace this? Because mm-hmm. I think it's a huge, again, a huge paradigm shift when as opposed to having a big truck back up and dumping out yards of concrete and you've got you know um, stakes and everything else in place. For, for forming that foundation of a house. And this year, basically putting up guide rails for a bunch of big ink gen printers to come in and move around and, and mm-hmm. drop concrete. So it's a, it's a huge, I think just for a homeowner or somebody who's building a home, to just grab onto that initially is going to be really tough. Mm-hmm. I think it's also going to have a lot of effects on some of the periphery markets within construction. If you're looking at investing in a $200,000 printer, Versus the machinery, the digging equipment, the back holes, renting the cement mixture, all of that kind of stuff. What's going to happen there? And I think where that could come to a head is with a lot of the regulatory issues, a lot of the coding concerns that might come in here. Yeah, it's the same type of material, but when you're looking at different production processes and different safety concerns, I'm sure OSHA is going to be involved here. At what pace is this going to go? How is the capabilities going to match up with consumer demand and then the regulatory environment and then the different com- market competition elements all coming to a head it's going to be really interesting I think in the end the home buyer consumer is going to be the winner mm-hmm. because potentially you're getting a better built home at a lower price point yeah. so it's it's going to be interesting to mm-hmm. see that because I think there's going to be there's going to be some forces that get in the way yeah, to protect their own interests. Well, and right now the industry
1: is getting in its own way because consumer demand outpaces uh, current supply because there just aren't enough companies that 3D print homes right now. Um, I've talked to a number of companies that actually do 3D printing and uh, they can't even service the number of people that reach out um, looking to get a house built. Um, and so they've actually called for more people in the industry or from possibly outside the industry to get into 3D printing homes because unlike sort of... Uh, it's an, enti- it's an entirely different methodology, right? You know, yeah. when you think yeah. of like everything, carpentry, like framing a house, this is completely different where you're mm-hmm. basically pouring a slab, making sure that you have X and Y set up right, that the materials are continuing uh, to remain the right consistency. Uh, way different. So, you know, you could be looking at people that either are looking to change or get out of the construction industry or get into an entirely different side of it. You know, I think that'd be really interesting. Look at
2: something as simple as rebar. Mm-hmm. Look how much rebar goes in the construction of a home. Yeah. Here you're just pointing it into a form. Yeah. Um, Anna, your thoughts on the uh, 3D printed home?
0: Yeah. I, You know, I, you make some decent points about demand. I, just, I guess I would say that just because demand is outpacing the ability to fulfill it, this is such a small, small industry right now. That doesn't mean that there's a, a ton of demand. No. Yet. I mean,
1: if you look at the market, it says that it's going to double every year until 2030. That's because it was a million-dollar market. Right, like, it's tiny right like, now. Yeah, so it can continue to double until 2030 and probably still not be 5% of the yeah, housing market.
0: Right, exactly. And I, I'm i all for this. Uh, I just wonder if there are concerns, um, you know, to Jeff's point about is an average person looking at this and thinking, like, I don't know if I feel safe, my family sleeping in there um, at this point. You know, people have we're just so used to like a stick built house. That's just what we're used to. Right. But I do think, you know, as you see that stick built houses can't always withstand what's thrown at them either. Mm -hmm. You know, from, we saw that in stark relief this week with hurricane Ian. Um, But you mentioned this in the video, uh, the 3d printed home in Virginia that was put up last year. Yeah. That was put up through habitat for humanity. um, And according to architectural digest, The home was constructed in only 28 hours and is reportedly strong enough to withstand hurricanes and tornadoes, Mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. Um, You know, not to mention that this is coming at a time when housing costs are becoming so out of reach for so many I just read this very depressing article about how starter homes comprise such a small percentage of the market these days because they're just not as profitable. And also corporations are buying them up as rentals. Uh So millennials Hmm. and younger are finding themselves basically priced out of the home buying market, maybe permanently. And it just seems like something like this solves so many of those problems. You just need to see things like this that are highly publicized, um, early adopters who are showing that, look, we can make this work and it's a reality. Um, Even though it's non-traditional, here's how we vet it. You just have to see people live there for a while, right? Right. Um, I guess the biggest question for me, and you kind of touched on this a minute ago, but will traditional builders change what they do to incorporate this? Or is this an entirely new business? And if, if traditional contractors are using this equipment, do they know how to use it? Um, yeah. because that's not their uh, core competency right these are builders with wood and concrete and rebar and the tradition, traditional methods um that's where i would feel a bit of concern is knowing that this is, is you know it's, it's a very specific process mm-hmm. do the people you know if if somebody's taking this into their business and just trying to learn it that would make me a little nervous seeing how that plays out but right that's no,
1: just me. I mean, uh, talking about the housing problem, that's actually a big reason that 3D printing homes uh, kind of have made such a b- big impact already mm-hmm. um, is because it, they it kind of came out around the same time that that tiny home phenomenon came out Yeah, uh, trying to solve the housing crisis. Like, no, 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 I'll, I'll just build a house on a pallet and put it in someone's backyard. Instant home. Uh, these are a little bit more reliable. Uh, and t- you said 28 hours quicker to build, a lot more uh, sturdy. Um, I think that one of the easy ways around this would be model homes, you know, just getting more people into it. Because even when you take a virtual tour of some of these homes, it is some of it is difficult to kind of wrap your head around because if you don't kind of frame the inside of it, everything, you see the layers of the concrete, you know, it is kind of a very rustic looking uh, design. But I think if you got more people into them, they're talking about building actual communities, that are just, you know, a couple thousand of these smaller homes mm-hmm. um, all built together. I could understand that. I could see that coming together the same way that they build subdivisions everywhere around Madison. Like,
2: David, you're, you're closer to this. So I'll ask you, do you think if, say, somebody is, as opposed to Perry, which people just don't know that name right yeah. now. If this was branded Caterpillar yeah. or John Deere or Oshkosh, names that you associate with construction equipment. Mm-hmm. Do you think that would change people's perceptions? on this process going this route? I mean, I think so until,
1: or until like uh, someone was able to get to that sort of notoriety. I definitely think that if it had more of a champion with more name recognition that would easily, you know, kind of set people at ease a little bit more than, you know, working with three different companies that nobody's ever heard of before. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, w- another thing that's really cool about the, uh, the technology is that you can construct complex building structures because mm-hmm. you're using essentially modeling software programs to build these. Um, and some of the designs can get really cool. I think um, at South by Southwest, I think they were debuting some sort of, sort of non-traditional housing layouts because when we're building stick buildings, we're thinking about everything in squares and geometric shapes, you know, and you can get really weird when you're just yeah, pouring concrete. For sure. Um, so I think that would be interesting as well in terms of changing our minds as to how we live. Right. Um, because one big thing that we talk about with additive manufacturing is that it's not even close to where it's going to be with the next generation of designers. Like right now, people are only starting to put additive manufacturing, engineers are only starting to put additive manufacturing on plans you mm-hmm. know and these are we're still waiting on the next generation who has learned how to design with it i'm kind of waiting to see what the next generation of architects have to do when they could get their hands on this technology and really start to get creative with it i think that's where it could yeah. really unlock some of its potential
0: do you do you think there's a barrier in the unknown of what resale would be like on something like this i know that People have experimented with other materials in the past. If you look at the lustron home craze, those metal houses and stuff, those yeah. don't, people don't buy those now. They get torn down. Yeah. Um,
1: domes or <laughs> the houses in that. The domes. Yeah. yeah. The
0: geodesic domes. Yeah. Um, you know, is, is that in the back of somebody's mind when they're looking at the level of investment that they have to put in, if they're going to get their money back?
1: I definitely think so. You know, just because anything that is unique, uh, Brings a lot of attention to it, but maybe also keeps people a little bit away because it's not going to meet their specific needs or, um, you know, I mean, it's not a house made out of tires filled with sand. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I could see people being a little apprehensive if it was going to be, you know, their first home or something like that. Sure. Um, But yeah, I um, but I think it could really disrupt the industry. Uh, Jeff, you talk about it using concrete. Um, They talk about the development of hempcrete. To really be a disruptor in this industry, because that's much more sustainable and a strong, as strong of a material. Um, but I don't know. I just when I see um, when I see developments like this, I get encouraged because it's solving a lot of problems with innovative materials and uh, innovative uh, practices. That uh, you know, solving problems that people really haven't even looked at from that angle before. So mm-hmm. that's why I find it encouraging. All right, well, before we get to in case you missed it, we have another word from our sponsor, Rockwell Automation.
0: According to Rockwell Automation, downtime costs industrial manufacturers some $50 billion each year, and it's largely avoidable. Engineering transformation relies on the prioritization of digital skills and manufacturers can gain a clear competitive advantage when they explore invest in and deploy new and emerging digital technologies. I'm Anna Wells, executive editor of manufacturing.net. And today we are joined by two experts from Rockwell Automation, Matt Masaryk and Anton Lana, who will share with us how companies can save valuable time and money by testing and improving their designs before they start production.
2: And
1: we're back. And before we get started with In Case You Missed It, just remember that businesses need to consider how they can create a digital vision for their operations and a plan for how to monitor progress. This new video podcast will help you discover how companies can save valuable time and money by testing and improving their designs before they start production. Plus, Anna hosted it, so it's a winner. Mm -hmm. Right, Anna? Yeah. Well, let's move on to In Case You Missed It. Anna with the hard sell there.
0: (laughs) It is a winner.
1: (laughs) The stories that uh, maybe weren't as popular this week, but could make a big impact on the industry going forward. Anna, I'd like to start with you this week. What is your In
0: Case You Missed It? All right. The headline is as follows. Tesla foresees its factories with thousands of humanoid bots. A recent job posting for a role described as, quote, motion planning and navigation Tesla bot, reveals some of Tesla's ambitions. The listing describes the bot as humanoid and bipedal, saying it will automate repetitive and boring tasks. The company's job post also describes a future vision of scaling it to thousands of humanoid robots within our factories. So how real is this? And does making this public statement address some type of ulterior motive for Tesla? Is my question. For example, Elon Musk has a history of threatening subtly and not so subtly his factory workers who express any type of interest in unionizing. Hmm. Is he doing that again? I don't know. I like it seems like I, I would not put it past him to be like.
2: Yeah, you really want to work for this guy, don't you?
0: Right. Exactly. Oh,
1: but everyone does. That's what's crazy. Oh, but,
2: from an engineering perspective. Yes. Mm-hmm. But within the factory, when he comes up with stuff like this. Yeah. We mm.
0: got all these bots on the way, so don't get too comfortable and don't get too lippy. <laughs> Not, Watch with
2: those don't buttons. Don't be asking for yeah. more stuff. Watch with the buttons.
0: Secondly, he has a history of making these sort of broad proclamations, as we've seen, that sometimes come to fruition. They sometimes don't. Whether they're realistic doesn't really stop him from opening his mouth and sharing his ambitions with the world. I say this because while auto plants have typically been at the forefront of general, like ahead of general manufacturing when it comes to implementation of automation, um, there's not a single auto plant in the world that I'm aware of that has filled its factories with cobots specifically. And I don't see that as being near to happening. Um, you know the okay so i f- I found a stat on the robot density in the u s automotive industry, and it hit a new record last year that is one thousand two hundred and eighty seven installed units per ten thousand employees um, Unfortunately, for Elon, I think there's still a lot of value added tasks in automotive um, that robots or Cobots just really aren't equipped to do, and he's building a robot from scratch mm-hmm. <laughs> so there are some very functional robots that exist in the market now. His is, last I checked, he's unveiling an update today, today so we'll yeah. find out. But like last we saw of it was a person dressed in a robot suit. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's
1: a person in spandex.
0: Yeah. Yes. So I feel like we may still be a long, long way out on this. Um, it made for a very dramatic headline. Uh, the, f- the fact that he put this out there in the job posting, I thought was a little bit ridiculous because I do not see this as happening anytime soon. But that's just my perspective on this. I don't know how you guys feel.
2: <laughs> I guess it's your perspective on what is soon. Uh- Why do they insist on calling them humanoid? That is the creepiest way to go about trying to get somebody on board with robots,
0: because it looks like a human. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what
2: like, you call it. It's just five, call it a robot. It's, it's yeah.
0: five foot eight. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a huge. It's terrifying.
2: But when they say humanoid, yeah. doesn't that just paint the most dystopian of pictures? Oh, like yeah. I mean, do you want to work on something else?
0: Make it know. look not. Like a robot. Um, But but
2: that's a huge problem with robots. Or I mean, not
0: like a person. Yeah. But I mean,
1: that's the huge problem with adoption with where we got with uh, cobots, right? Was that Mm -hmm. people were uncomfortable being around industrial robots. So they just they tried to kind of like humanize robots to make. Cobot's more approachable, so people weren't afraid with working in tandem with them. So maybe just the next logical step is you make it look like a person.
0: Did it not make it worse? Because I, <laughs> to me, it's yeah. worse. I would, agree. I would rather... Uh,
2: make it look as mechanical as possible. Exactly.
0: Make it look like a machine. The machine that it is, don't yeah. make it look like the Terminator. That Nobody wants that.
1: Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know how far off his prediction is because... I mean, there's a real, no, there's a very realistic job crisis. For those of
0: you who are listening to audio only, you missed like an epic eye roll from Jeff.
1: It was almost an audible eye roll. His eyes are like like, still
0: coming (laughs) back. They're stuck.
1: Yeah, it sounded like a wagon turning in sand. Um, (laughs) So I'm just saying that there are very realistic issues. We talked about, you know, a need for 400,000 welders. Uh, There's a trucker shortage. We have a labor shortage issues in manufacturing something's gonna have to happen and i think that it stands to reason that it could be robots not humanoid robots or you know i just think that that could be a solution the
0: tesla bot you think is sometime soon just because it, we have a welder shortage that's
1: what i said it depends on what soon is because yeah i don't see i don't see the worker shortage getting any better no but
0: that doesn't mean that he is equipped to solve it
1: no but it doesn't mean he's not gonna try He's tried to solve plenty of other problems, then he's nailed it on most But that's occasions. not what
2: we were talking about. We are talking about how quickly this is going to happen. I mean, we just pitched a webinar talking about digital twins. That's one of many automation technologies that are in place to help address some of these worker labor concerns. Yeah. Not that we want fewer people in the factories. We just want to automate some of these tasks so we can improve efficiencies, have people doing more quality control, design, innovation type work. Yeah. I just find it super ironic, too, that you've got a guy like Elon Musk who has been very vocal on the fact that he feels one of the most important roles human beings have is to procreate. Mm -hmm. He has a lot of children. I'm not – that's great, okay? But then at every chance, he's talking about replacing people in factories with robots. Isn't that kind of weird? Doesn't that kind of work against, like, competing thought process here? I don't
1: know that he's necessarily –
2: uh, did he specifically say replacing people?
0: He didn't. He said uh, scaling to thousands of humanoid robots within our factories. And currently, the landscape in automotive is that for the automation that comes in, jobs are being created on Correct. top of that. To, but, but I just to, to Jeff's point, I like there there are there is automation that already exists to automate repetitive tasks.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: This this is a weird.
2: Yeah, don't give don't, don't me that he didn't say this. No, this but is exactly saying, what he's implying. I, I don't
1: think so. I don't think
2: so. Like, uh, You I don't are see... catering to what you think is going to be robot overlords here again.
1: That's not true. You that want true. the overlords? I don't yes. want the overlords. I just see how this is the next logical step towards the demise of mankind. Humankind, I apologize. Um, <laughs> but I mean, when we're at IMTS and we see machine-tending robots, I mean, because there are no humans to tend the machines... I think the next logical step is to make that Cobot be able to walk so in between 45-second cycles it could maybe do something else. I just think that's a logical next step. I don't see it as a dystopian future yet. I don't see
2: it.
0: I don't think that he's going to be the one to get there
2: first either.
1: But everyone said that about SpaceX and Tesla.
2: No, No. I didn't say that about those concepts. We maybe said that about the way he went about doing it, he he's always made the process more difficult and painful than it's needed to be.
1: Yes. I'm I'm just saying that he has a history of taking big swings and nobody believed it. And so, like, yeah, but
0: he wasn't competing against a ton of already very well established yeah. EV companies when he launched Tesla. That's not the case for automation.
1: Yeah. Well, no, he's I mean, there is no one doing humanoid robot production we, right now. We don't Because know nobody that.
2: wants humanoid robots.
1: I guess we'll see, Jeff. I guess we'll see. What's your in case you missed it this week?
0: We are going to replace you with a humanoid <laughs> robot. I
1: already have been replaced <laughs> by a humanoid robot.
0: <gasps> I don't watch.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. If the only big I, reveal. You if, guys,
0: wait until the end for the big reveal. If <laughs> I
1: have, like, I just, you know, a little FX makeup, and I really could have made that good. Just like. Ah!
0: Metal inside. Yeah. No,
1: or just like uh, underneath the, like, have, like, the flux capacitor, like, underneath me. Yeah. Uh, You ruined it. I could have set that up for next week. I missed a heck of an opportunity. Uh, Jeff, what is your in case you missed it this week?
2: Well, it's not quite that dramatic, but I did want to talk a little bit. I thought this was a cool uh, story. I think Ben also did this one on the Great Pacific Garbage Patches days. May be numbered. Mm. It's kind of cool. We're talking about this company, Ocean Cleanup. Again, we've talked about them before with their trash fence and stuff they're trying to do with some of the rivers. Now they're going after the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Just And I wanted to do this story just to bring a little bit more perspective because sometimes we talk about pollution in the ocean and we don't have as much perspective on it. This one caught me. It's more than 220 million pounds of trash and it's three times the size of France. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a lot of crap, man. That is a lot. So a lot of basically
0: Arizona iced teas, I don't know right? how much
1: of it is feces.
2: I wasn't being literal. Sorry, oh. Robotic David.
1: Sorry, I only process ones and zeros. Yes.
2: So anyway, Ocean Cleanup has come up with System 3, and it's three times larger, the size of its predecessor, with a span of about a mile and a half between the two lead vessels. So it'll be attached to two different boats. They'll pull this massive net to catch the trash. It funnels it back. Um, It can hold up to 55,000 pounds of garbage, then loads it onto another vessel, puts it in containers, gets it out of there. I thought this was, again, I think this is important because it's using – modern technology to solve a big problem, a problem that we do need to get a handle on. And the other thing that kind of blew me away is even though they're being able to lift out 55,000 pounds of garbage at a time, they're really looking at this as deadlines in terms of like 2030 and 2040 before this will really become managed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just again, adding to the scope of the situation, if you've got a favorite charity, this is one that should definitely be at the top of your list. Um. So Ocean Cleanup, again, doing some cool stuff. They've got some incredible technology working. They're also going to be using drones to go out and help identify some of these bigger patches yeah. mm-hmm. of garbage. So um, I just thought it was a cool story, kind of an ongoing thing. But also, we shouldn't stop thinking about this. We think yeah. we have solutions in place, but it's still a huge issue.
1: Yeah. Well, when you're watching the video, and I <clears throat> encourage anyone who hasn't seen it yet to go and watch this video because – how it works and when you're just watching them unload those nets
2: yeah.
1: filled with garbage into shipping containers, it really kind of hits home as to how much they're cleaning up. Because you can say like 55,000 pounds, stuff like that. Yeah. It but when you see it, mm-hmm. you're just like, every one of those containers is filled with trash and then you see the nets continue to be unloaded. And just how it works, because I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, it's a, gi- it's a giant net and two big boats, right? But uh it is just It's really cool how they're doing it.
2: Well, and this also leads into a lot of stories we do about taking these plastics that cannot be broken down and figuring out other applications for them. You talk about a lot with medical applications. We talk about some of these other different, even forms of concrete that are using some of these shards of plastic that can't be recycled and broken down and using them to build other things. So Mm -hmm. the fact that we have... That's sort of the next step. Let's get it out of there first and then figure out some practical applications for it because they are out there. Yeah. So it's it's a step. It's not the total solution, but it's a step in the right direction. And um, I'm not like a huge environmental issue guy, but this one – Kids me, <laughs> but you so. can
1: recognize that however many, however many France's worth of garbage in the ocean—that's yeah. a, a problem. That's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, we
2: shouldn't do that no more. Well,
1: yeah. and I really liked uh, the idea you mentioned the drones about how these could be fully autonomous systems that yeah. are uh, the drones identify the problem areas, uh, the rigs kind of travel to them, clean them up, and then mm-hmm. the drone finds the next one. Because they said how many systems do they want up and run? Like eight or nine right. by like twenty thirty. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, that is—it's uh, really cool, uh, Anna. Any final thoughts about cleaning up our oceans?
0: No, I'm just glad to hear that Jeff is not pro ocean trash.
2: <laughs> right. I'm also not anti jobs. Well,
0: neither we're... am I. <laughs> for the last time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Well, luckily, I remain pro robot takeover. Our last, in case you missed it, brought to you by me, David human, is failed relay causes $6 million in damage. So on July 12th, 2021, at about 3.30 a.m., the Jalma Topic bulk carrier was moving up the lower Mississippi River, headed to a grain terminal in New Orleans. Yeah, ma- <laughs> so, sorry, when we shot this, we had just a lot of fun with all the different ways that, all the different ways that you can say New Orleans, New Orleans, is it, can I say New Orleans?
2: The vessel like
1: that. You don't say it like (laughs) New Orleans. No, man, just a lot, a lot of fun with it. New (laughs) Orleans, New Orleans.
0: (laughs) He's short circuiting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So this vessel that's headed to New Orleans suddenly lost the ability to steer and crashed into a stationary barge that was being used for office space. No injuries were reported in the accident, but it caused more than six million dollars in damages. So the National Transportation Safety Board launched an investigation into the accident and traced the problem back to a failed solid-state relay on the Operating Steering Control System Servo Control Board. The component failure caused the steering loss. In December 2014, YDK Technologies, formerly known as Yokogawa, the steering control system manufacturer, created a caution sticker as part of a notice to all vessels with this PT-500 autopilot system. The sticker... Addressed what to do in the event, what to do in the event of a failure like the one experienced on the Jalma topic. The vessel's operator said that they were not notified of the 2014 notice or this groundbreaking sticker until after the accident. Now, this story was interesting to me for a lot of reasons because I find it interesting when these crazy multi-million-dollar accidents happen as a result of a single component. You know, a single fastener, a single screw, or this one was a single (laughs) failed component on a motherboard in this very intricate system. The other was that, you know, a lot of times with these, we talk about um, pilot fatigue, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Well, this was a new pilot and actually things were a lot better. Could have been a lot worse if they hadn't switched out pilots because the pilot that just took over the Jelma topic when this happened actually worked for one of the companies that worked on this office barge. And he knew that people were going to be working on this barge that they were headed towards and that not only would, uh, that they needed to get out, but that they didn't kind of listen to traditional communication methods. So he knew that he had to like reach out to other people to try and get a hold of them. Like I think one of the workers wound up getting called on a cell phone and then another on like a walkie talkie and that's how they kind of got out of there. And. I'm not, I didn't even know that office barges were a thing. <laughs> That's a thing, yeah. 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 And it just, it looked up until, you know, it was smashed into and almost decimated. Um, looked like a kind of a cool place to work. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, uh, the houseboat, uh, the office boat. Um, the other thing, finally, is that, so the manufacturer finds out that there's this r- problem, right? And instead of issuing a recall or going in and fixing the problem on all these systems... They, you know, the powers that be get together and they're like, you know what? We'll send them a sticker. Mm -hmm. We'll send them a sticker, probably attached to like one of those postcards that you get in the mail with recalls for your car. Just like, no, 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 just slap that on there. Make sure to very carefully read this in the event that this fails because it could go sideways. But uh, just another interesting story uh, that came as a result of an NTSB investigation and I know that we recently did the other one uh, regarding the um, pipeline. the pipeline but uh, I just I find these I find these fascinating and there were a lot of critical issues here that impact a lot of different industries that I think people could could learn from uh, Jeff, did you get a chance to watch this video yet
2: Not yet I sure. this one posted today but um, again we're looking at something that happened in 2014. Eight years ago, it seems like the proper maintenance procedures at some point should have run across that this there was a potential for issues. Mm-hmm. Even if it is a component, this I mean, geez. I a, know a relay. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, that's it's that's like, really drilling down. It's mad. not even something that you like, it's so
1: small, like, even on the board.
2: Yeah. You still would have think that so I put a little bit of accountability on the operator. Oh, yeah. okay. okay. So mm-hmm. This is an eight-year-old problem. They should have been aware of this okay. from a maintenance perspective. I would echo your sentiment though. I mean, that's weak. Yeah. I mean, it again, this is a low cost potential fix, even if it's replacing that board or that section of it, either have somebody come out and take care of it, send them a new I mean this this seems like it could have been addressed very simply uh, as opposed to a potential tragedy like this.
1: Well, and I can't remember exactly what the sticker says, but essentially it's like turn it on and off again.
2: You know, like it would have been a Mm -hmm. simple fix.
1: Um, Anna, your thoughts on this uh, failed relay problem causing this accident on the lower Mississippi?
0: Yeah, I agree with you that there's a lot that can be done in terms of after-sales support um, and (laughs) that chain of communication. Because that was the first thing I thought of, too, was automotive recalls. Mm -hmm. Like they send out these postcards. I I had some recalls on my SUV fixed and I still keep getting letters from the dealership saying like if you haven't had this fixed so they fixed it they should know that it's fixed like what you know but I think people sort of tune that stuff out or like if you sell it to somebody else then no no one knows how to get to you with this critical safety information Mm -hmm. because what if you need a sticker later (laughs) right so I don't know. I think that there's there's a lot of work to be done there in terms of like tracking where this equipment winds up. You think we have the technology for that at this point, but I guess not.
1: Just a sticker that you put next to your steering wheel, and in the event that your steering wheel stops working, mm-hmm. you just quickly shut the car off, turn it back on, yeah, boom, it's yep. working again. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's get into our final thoughts before we get out of here this week. Anna, what is your final thought?
0: Uh, I, uh, my final thought this week was I enjoyed, um, finding out the true cost of printer paper when my, <laughs> so my children go through a lot of it because they're young artists and they do a lot of craft projects at home. But yesterday I came home and my daughter, um, who was seven had used, she grabbed like this huge stack of it and it was $12 for just this little ream of paper. And, uh, she built a paper swimming pool in her bedroom. Wow. Oh, mm-hmm. wow! You know what that is?
1: No, but it seems extensive.
0: Yeah, it took up a lot of space. Um, so, uh, just a heads up that uh, paper costs twelve dollars for a ream,
2: <laughs> and so.
0: that there is no use for a paper swimming pool in any application. So,
2: it doesn't isn't quite durable enough. It doesn't quite. <laughs>
0: you don't want to put water in that.
1: <laughs> the best application is in, you know, a young developing mind. I was Ooh. like,
0: what are you doing with this exactly?
1: A fruitful imagination.
2: <laughs> and did she look at you like, duh? Yeah, it's totally pool, like, obviously. like,
0: duh. And then I went in there and I'm like, where are you going to put this when it's done? And she's like, I'll find a place for it.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, duh.
0: Duh. Yeah.
1: I, uh, you know, uh. Des is still making things smaller. He's really into cutting right now. So we're not on like the scale of mm-hmm. projects. Right now we're trying to make things smaller and easier to
0: lose. We'll get ready for the paper swimming tool- pool. How- it's coming at some point. That sounds great. Yeah.
1: Um, <clears throat> my final thought this week is simple. It is Go Zebras, which is my son's soccer team that plays on Sunday. And if you have never been entertained by three and four-year-olds playing three-on-three three soccer – just go and check that out because it is hilarious. Um, also, I was kind of um, coaxed into coaching this despite not having any knowledge of what how soccer is played beyond yeah. don't pick the ball up. I knew that one.
2: That's um, all but it was need. Good place to start. Yeah,
1: it was just a reminder that, you know, um, there are a lot of student activities, particularly, you know, we talk about just STEM fields, stuff like that, but anywhere in your community and there is a real lack of um adult volunteers and as a result some of these things can't even happen like we played one yeah. team that just didn't have a parent that even stepped up and coach coached and so when the ref kept asking the sidelines like hey what are we doing they're all like not it not doing oh
0: it. no yeah
1: so i was kind of like on both teams just like all right you three here you three there and then they kind of all just run together and fall down around the ball yeah but i mean and then someone gets kicked not the ball And then there's a whole different can of worms. Um, So if you get the opportunity, you know, get out in your community and maybe try to volunteer a little bit because, you know, you'll be a better person as a result. The other thing is I wanted to welcome Atticus Alexander into the world. Uh, I feel like the industrial media family grew a little bit. And it's also weird when your friends start becoming grandparents. Mm -hmm. That's a hard one. (laughs) That's a hard pill as well. But uh, no. So I wanted to welcome Atticus Alexander into this world Beautiful baby, brand new baby.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: Jeff,
2: your final thought. Tough to follow that one. Yeah. Oh, sorry. But what do you
0: got better than that, Jeff?
2: I don't. Nothing's better than that. You volunteered no. coaching. I have, and it gets better once the kids get a little older. Like, honestly, when they get into that, like eight, nine, 10, that's like the best. Yeah. Because they actually still sort of listen. But once they get past that, then they know better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then it gets challenging. Mm. Plus, parents become. Absolute. More involved, oh, more involved oh, yeah. than what you're uh, you're experiencing right now. But okay. anyway, um, one closing thought: I want to say thanks to everybody who's kind of chimed in on my kitchen remodel project. It is going well; it's going very, very well. Interesting note: all of the the, um, the contractors have been very excited to install something that is not white cabinetry oh. into okay. the kitchen. Apparently, everybody's going with white cabinets, so I think it just improved their mood to be doing something different than that. Mm-hmm. What so, color are your cabinets? They're kind of a um, depends on how the light hits them, to be honest. The but it's sort, a, no. <laughs> it's, no. um, it's sort of a no, it's bone. No, it's sort of a grayish with sort of brown tints oh, through it. It's cool. I love the way it looks. I'm probably describing it horribly. I'm terrible with colors, but um, no, it's been great, and yeah, yeah. everything's been going cool there. Excellent. So. The trivia that we had. Oh,
1: oh, Seth has got a there jar go. of I or uh, today manufacturing hot sauce ready for us. Nice. Yeah. We need a labeler.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh, red. Um, Trivia from last week. Yeah. Remember the the questions? which of the following is having the biggest impact on manufacturing's ability to grow? We talked about scalable, renewable energy, data retention, defense projects requiring quicker development times, stakeholder visibility on tax credits, or worker retention and recruitment strategies. Just sharing a couple of thoughts from our readers here. This is from Joe. He's a Participates quite a bit. Appreciate hearing from Joe. He says, I think keeping people has a big impact. The knowledge learned on the job grows over time. Those people help make a stronger workforce. When people move around, they're not contributing to the bigger picture. Companies that do things to keep their employees there and happy, in my opinion, would grow and function stronger than a company that just hires anyone that can fog a mirror. He also says, by the way, the pizza looked delicious. So It was. excellent. So Joe, appreciate that. Uh, Ralph also chimed in. I uh, said the difficult of finding suitable candidates and then retaining them is time consuming and costly. We've talked about that a lot. So the expense of not retaining them is unacceptable. Smaller businesses are in very difficult times. So, mm-hmm. so and those comments really, it was really a runaway. Everybody talked about worker retention, recruitment strategies potentially having the biggest impact on, on manufacturing going forward. I do want to say we've been getting a lot of feedback, a lot of people emailing and stuff. If I forget to get you a shirt, just let me know. Yeah. Like shoot me another email, we'll get those out to you. My apologies if that got overlooked. Um, following the poll question for this week, which of the following things covered in the podcast that we just talked about best illustrate the thing that leads to the thing? Yes. Which one? We've got aviation's prototype, the electric air, the electric. Propulsion unit airplane. We've got VW's autonomous vehicle prototype that can help David sleep when mm. he's or plug in, I guess, okay. right? Just mm-hmm. recharge. Yeah, recharge
1: yeah. I'm going to, yeah, I need to recharge.
2: West Virginia's renewable microgrid industrial park or Perry's 3D printed homes. So let us know which of those things do you think is best illustrates the thing that leads to the thing. Also want to say, William, thanks for sending in your t shirt idea. We always like to, uh, like to see those appreciate can we
1: that talk about that for a second sure can you can you pull that do you have that to, that you could pull up on the uh the old prompter there the uh email or the uh t-shirt concept that we got from william brent well if we can't pull it up right now for us to look at it it's incredible we'll make sure that it is on the uh yeah the video version of the podcast if you want to check it out um next monday when it comes out but i thought it was an incredible effort
2: he did a nice job of putting you in the time machine. He basically, to kind of talk through mm-hmm. a little bit, he had the things with the sundial mm. and then David in a time machine, like the chair from like the movie, The Time Machine. Yeah. So it was kind of the thing Great that leads movie. to the thing starting with the, the oh, sundial to that's what time meant? travel. Yeah. Like time. Oh, yeah.
1: okay. And then just a big Jeff in the middle.
2: Yeah. Just a <laughs> <laughs> That was awesome. little character. I was just like,
1: man, look at this awesome cartoon character, Jeff. Oh, there and there's a sundial <laughs> at first i was just like this is really coming in. i don't know i like it i like it it's like
2: yeah. hey it's always cool to see that stuff yeah yeah so thank you
1: william and uh, for everyone contributing the uh t-shirt concepts so some of them one of these has to be made
2: We'll get there some point. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, before we get out of here this week, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. To email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com with email, the podcast, in the subject line. Finally, make sure you subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters and make sure you get the podcast delivered to your inbox first. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube at IEN Magazine so you can catch us live for about 10 more seconds. All right. For (laughs) Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. And we'll 4, 3, 2, 1. See you next week.
2: Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.